funny how? It'd be funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Silver Screen Video. My name is Jacob. I'm here with my co-host, Jonathan. What's up, John? Not much, Jacob. Uh, another episode that I am excited about. It's going to be a fun one. Hell yeah. We're going to do... Uh, we got some good content for you guys today. We're going to do uh, top 10 uh, movies of the 90s. We're, we got a couple of uh, separate top 10 lists that we're going to get into my top 10 list. And of course, John's and uh, maybe we'll surprise you guys with a little something extra at the end of this, some top 10 lists by some, uh, I don't want to say friends of the pod, but uh, you know, so, some, some close associates of ours. Let's say acquaintances, acquaintances uh, of the pod. That, that sounds good. Yeah. 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 So we're going to be talking about top 10 movies of the nineties. Yeah, just briefly, man. I don't know. Like, what what does the '90s represent as a as a decade for you? Like, what do you? Uh, I feel like both of us have kind of different relationships to movies of the '90s. I will be honest with you. I feel like for me, the '90s is the best decade of cinema since I've became what like a cinephile or whatever in right. terms of movies that I love. Like, we're not talking about if you go back to the 40s and the 50s with your Bogarts and Noirs and John Houston's and 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 all of that shit. I'm talking about like movies that like at their core represent what I love about cinema. I don't think it gets better than the 90s. And I feel like we've already talked about this a little bit when I said like like every like a 99 and 2019 both brought some really heavy hitting movies that are going to hold up. And like the joke was like 2009, if, if you could say the end of every decade, kind of. I still don't know because I've never checked. Point being, 99 brought some insane heavy hitters as well, and it really capped off the decade. So I think a lot of the films in, in the 90s really just represent the times of the 90s. Like it was a very interesting time uh, in America. Yeah, you know, I, I and I, I feel like you have. I feel like you saw a lot of these movies during the actual '90s, and they were, you know, kind of part of your life a little bit. Whereas, you know, from my perspective, I wasn't. I, I don't think I saw a single one of these movies during the actual '90s. So the '90s for me, even though like I lived through them, and and obviously like participated in you know the mainstream culture and, and kids kid culture of the 90s you know i didn't have that older brother figure like you had to kind of you know introduce me to the you know to the movies of the 90s or i know maybe some people might have had older brothers who introduced them to new bands or whatever in the 90s but for me going back and watching these 90s movies was something i had to engage with kind of on my own in the mid 2000s you know, I don't think I saw Goodfellas until, I mean, at probably 2003, 2004, maybe, maybe even 2005, you know, it's. Well, it's interesting because I watched Fight Club in 99. I remember that. I watched Fight Club the year it came out and spoiler, that's on my list. But a lot of these other movies I didn't watch. And I, I literally watched, I would say 70% of my list I watched in 2000 because that oh. was the year where I really 
really took off and started watching a lot because even some of these movies just weren't like appropriate right. for for a 13 year old at the time. I may have seen no, I saw Braveheart too, but uh the rest of them, yeah, I didn't watch until the two thousand because that's like I was a little older, so I could like watch more of that stuff. Okay. For obvious reasons. So So kind of an interesting decade in the sense that we lived through it, but we didn't really experience these movies firsthand. You know, we were alive when all of these movies come out, but we, you know, we were kind of forced to see them later in life just because of, you know, when you're a kid, you're not really up to up on the latest, uh, you know, latest goings on in cinephilia. It wasn't, you know, I, as much as I would like to have been, I wasn't, you know, uh, I wasn't seven years old and thinking, oh man, Pulp Fiction just premiered in Cannes. It's getting great reviews, you know? Um, yeah, and I feel like a lot of these movies, I feel like for both of us, a lot of the movies on our top 10, like, come on, we know we wouldn't have even appreciated what they were if we had watched them at 11 or 12 or sure, even 10. You sure. know what I mean? Like, could you imagine watching like fucking Casino? Right. Like in ni- 1993, I think it came out in 93. Like that'd be fucking crazy. Right. Like, <laughs> you're uh, you're uh, like a seven or eight year old kid. You're like, oh man, I can't wait for this guy's head to go on a vice. <laughs> Oh man. All right, man. So you just want to jump into it, man. Let's do uh let's start with your number 10 and we'll just uh we'll just take it from there. Now some of these movies well, we've we've talked about kind of ad nauseum in other podcast or in other episodes, and we'll just kind of reference the episodes and and mention them briefly. But a lot of these we haven't covered at all, and I'm I'm pretty excited to talk about them. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm really excited to talk about them. And I'll tell you before we jump in, this isn't honorable mentions. Here we go. Because I know you hate those. I know you hate those. But listen, well, I, th- I gave this a lot of thought because I know you hate honorable mentions. Anybody that listens uh, knows we've we've struggled with this in the past. I just uh, don't. Uh, okay, I just don't see the point in doing honorable mentions when you're doing a top ten list. I agree with you. So this is how I'm going to frame it for anybody that hasn't seen these four movies. They didn't make my list because I just feel like the ones on my list obviously meant more. So this isn't honorable. This isn't like honorable mentions. These are like if you're trying to relive the 90s, because maybe as we can tell from looking at our numbers on our podcast, we have people that didn't really grow up in that or like didn't watch cinema in the 90s. That's true. So for somebody looking for a guide point in the 90s, these are just a few movies that didn't make my list. But I, I really think that they were some of the best of the 90s. I've had a top 20. This would be in the top 20. Those movies are Malcolm X. Leaving Las Vegas, Bringing Out the Dead, and American History X. I know how you feel about American History X, but would you agree with the other three? Bringing Out the Dead, I actually have not seen. Uh, oh, yeah, I forgot. So Leaving Las Vegas and Malcolm X, would you agree with that? You know, Leaving Las Vegas, yeah, I guess. Yeah, Leaving Las Vegas is is a pretty iconic movie of the night. It's been a while since I've seen Leaving Las Vegas, so I don't really feel qualified to talk about it, honestly. But Malcolm X is essential, absolutely. I, I would... I think Malcolm X is, uh, you know, yeah. If you want to understand why Denzel Washington, why you know Denzel Washington's name, watch Malcolm X, you know. Yeah, and th- and that's the thing. Like when I watched it, I was vaguely familiar with Malcolm X, but it was like it's I've I've heard when I watched it, I was like I've heard this is Denzel's best performance, so I have to watch it. Right. And then you you learn about the movie and you learn about it, and it's like, well, fuck, like this not only is amazing. It's just uh, it's his best performance. And it's just it's also just a, a really well done film. Um, and I love leaving Las Vegas. I uh, 
I think Nick Cage gives uh, probably his best performance. And I know when when you watch Bringing Out the Dead, we'll talk about it because I want to hear your thoughts. But the more I think about that movie and the more I read about that movie and like read about Paul Schrader and his thoughts when he was writing it and why Scorsese wanted to do it, the more that movie kind of takes on something that's um, that's while it's outside the scope of what Scorsese normally does it's really kind of a special movie and it's really, I don't know. It's, it's hard to explain. Once you watch it, I'm, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts. Cause I know Scorsese fans are kind of split on this and I feel like it leans more towards his fan base, not liking it than it does liking it. Yeah. We, we should, we should talk about it either. Maybe as part of a double feature about stuff. We kind of want the other one to watch, or maybe we'll discuss it during a Paul Schrader or during a Scorsese episode, because I'm, re- I am excited to see it. And, uh, I'm even more excited to kind of talk about it on pod and kind of, you know, kind of hammer out, you know, because rarely do we get to do that. I feel like where we talk about a movie that, that one of us hasn't seen before, but the other one has. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And, uh, and not to spoil for the listeners, but the other movie that I named happens to be number one on your nineties list, which is American history X. Um, <laughs> Jacob's a big fan, huge fan. And, uh, yeah, I figured we'd get that out of the way. So, oh, God damn it. So you don't like American history X, obviously like you, like, so you, you don't like it at all or you just think it's overrated. I, I think, well, yeah, I think it's overrated. I think it's. God damn it. Are you really going to make me talk about American History X? You don't, you don't have to talk about it. I was just curious because we've never, like, I didn't even know you hated this movie until like two months ago. Okay. I don't hate the movie. I don't hate the movie. There's very few movies I would say that I actually hate, right? Well, you just dislike it because I like it a lot. Like it almost ended up in my top 10. Like, I would say, I, I would say I don't care for it. I, I, yeah. I would say, I would say it, it feels to me kind of like a, an average kind of edgelord nineties movie that I, I, I don't like that much, but uh, I don't know. I can see that. I mean, I've heard that description about it. it it's definitely just one of those movies. It's just, it, you know, the, the content and, and Ed Norton and stuff. Like I just, uh, it's just one of those movies I like, but it's definitely, you know, that has a very spotty history in terms of its production Ed Norton, Tony K, stuff like that. You had to There's fucking, a lot of shit. There. You had to fucking fit it in, didn't you? You son of a bitch. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking last night when I was when I was like, I can't do honorable mentions, so I gotta think of a different way to frame it. There was no way I couldn't like especially after finding out that uh we disagreed so so oh, so big on it. So yeah. Um, All right, just get into your fucking top ten, dude. This is <laughs> <laughs> so so top ten for me. Uh my number ten slot is split between <laughs> oh my god <laughs> are you trying to give me a fucking coronary is split okay this was the only two things i told you about before the pod so now i'm good uh may i i could i couldn't leave off pulp fiction and i couldn't leave off the matrix so i split it someone else we're gonna someone else we're gonna talk about later also split their number 10 but for Jacob's sake, I, I will kind of move Pulp Fiction. That was my, primarily a joke. Um, Matrix is my number 10. Matrix to me is the perfect sci-fi film. I think that it raises more interesting questions. It raises as many interesting questions about humanity and all and technology as uh, 2001 Space Odyssey did. I just feel like it's contemplative in a different aspect because... You know, I think 2001 was in 1968. So this was literally 31 years later. So we've had 31 years of technology to to actually alter the way we view it. 
Right. So I love the Matrix. I think that it is it is basically the perfect sci-fi movie. Look, okay. First of all, let me just say you're making me seem like a like a dictator or something about these top ten lists. <laughs> all right, dude. So, dude, some it's it's one of us has to be in control, like in terms of otherwise it go off the rails. I would have had like ten honorable mentions. Exactly. Like one you're of- a necessary evil. <laughs> One of us has to keep things on track. I just, you know, like part of the the content of a top 10 list is that you can only pick 10 fucking movies. Like that's the, that's the challenge of it. You know what I mean? Like that's. I know. I just, I, I, it's hard. Okay. It's very difficult. God damn it. Um, And and you're making me seem like the, you know what? All right, dude, whatever. Well, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to like psychologically manipulate the listener into hating you. Are you Um, gaslighting the listener? Don't listen to him listeners. uh, I'm not familiar with this new terminology for things. Here we go. Um, Here we go. So, uh, so no, what are your thoughts on the matrix? We haven't really ever talked about the matrix. I don't know if you love it or hate it. I, I love the matrix. I think, you know, I, I'll tell you this, I'll tell you this. I, I think the kind of ideas behind the matrix are really interesting, but I kind of go back and forth on them, to be honest with you. Part of me, part of me thinks that it is kind of a really interesting, like update on kind of like the Plato's cave allegory where you're you know, you're not interfacing with the real world, but you don't know that you're not interfacing with the real world, you know? And that is, that is interesting to me. And I I do think it still kind of resonates philosophically moving forward. But when you're actually watching the movie, I think, you know, the, the fun part of it really takes over. I mean, at the end of the day, this is a martial arts science fiction movie there's a lot of fighting. There's a lot of, uh, you know, cool action. Um, there's, you know, everybody's wearing kind of black leather and black sunglasses and everything, you know, at the beginning, everything looks like it's filtered through like a green lens. Like there's a lot of, a lot of interesting kind of dark green, like color palette to the whole thing. And it, it really is like an absolutely fun kind of berserk balls to the wall action movie, sci-fi like action adventure movie. And I, um, I love it for that, but I, I do think there is some resonance to the, you know, quote unquote ideas or kind of philosophical subtext to it that, that does get, you know, more relevant as the years go by, especially, you know, I, I know people are thinking about it today specifically because of uh, Lana and Lily Wachowski about it being kind of like a trans narrative. Uh, which is its own, you know, that's, that's another interpretation that has cropped up recently. But so, yeah, no, I I think the matrix is great, but I can't help it. I'm always kind of suspicious. (laughs) Why couldn't I think of that word suspicious? (laughs) I'm always kind of suspicious of it being kind of some deeply philosophical text, but then sometimes I'm like, actually, you know what? It is pretty prescient and pretty interesting like 2001 style you know so i go back and forth but the thing that i don't go back and forth on is whether or not it is like a fun enjoyable movie i think it's a blast i think it's one of the best hollywood popcorn movies ever like it's it's so much fun you know look i'll tell you the only thing i'm suspicious about is whether or not we live in a simulation (laughs) uh so this movie is relevant more so now because that's that's the main thing I pull away from this movie. 
with the with the exponential growth of technology and and everything that has happened with AI over the last 20 years since this movie came out, it is fucking thought provoking and amazing from that aspect. Like I definitely understand how it could be a little off putting in terms of taking it seriously with all the leather and the weird camera lenses and like sometimes the weird way they would like like they would push their characters, especially with a uh, with uh, what's his face, uh, Keanu Lawrence Fishburne's character. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, oh no, man, you can always count on Keanu to Keanu. Like that's what he's gonna do to the day he dies. Yeah, but yeah, there's just there's there are some interesting like narrative choices in it. But overall, like I still find it to be incredibly thought provoking to me, and uh, and yeah, we live in a simulation, so <laughs> yeah, none of this is real. Um, okay, so uh, yeah, I love that idea. Hey, um, wait, let me take a little parenthetical here before we get into mine. Have you seen Toy Story Four? Not yet. It's on my list. Okay, so I watched I watched Toy Story Four last night. I'm really not sure why. I didn't enjoy it that much, and it felt like uh, kind of watching a zombie uh, walk around on screen because it had a bunch of the parts from the original trilogy, but none of the charm. But anyways, Keanu Reeves is in Toy Story 4. Do you know anything about the part that he plays? Yeah, he plays like a Canadian stuntman or something. Dude, it is hysterical. It is. I, I, I want to see it. I can't wait to see it. I've heard is really. I've heard is really great. That part and Keanu Reeves's character and his vocal performance and is genuinely like side splittingly hilarious. Like I, I, I thought you were about to get philosophical and talk about Forky and talk about how just because you makes like you make something that's designed to be a toy automatically gives it life. Okay. Well, I'm not prepared to have that conversation. <laughs> When we talk, when I watch Toy Story Four, we should have like this super deep conversation about what life means. Uh, but no, I, I'm, gl- I'm glad to hear your. Uh, I'm glad to hear it was funny because I do need to see it. I've just been putting it off. The the Keanu shit is 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 impeccable, man. Like it, it's so fucking funny. It, it it I I can't even really say anything without like spoiling it. But it's just so fucking funny. Keanu Reeves in in that movie, he's incredible. Love Keanu. I love him too. Yeah, I yeah, I'll 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 bump it up on my list to watch. So, uh, what's your uh, what's your number ten? Right. So, my number ten is the three. Co- and I was thinking about cheating and putting the whole trilogy on here, but I was it, it, I just followed the rules, unlike my co-host, and put <laughs> uh, <laughs> and put uh, just one movie from the trilogy, and it's uh, Three Colors Red. Three Colors trilogy is a a trilogy by Krzysztof Kieslowski, which I'm pretty sure is how you say his name, a Polish uh, director who is a genius. And he made a trilogy of movies that are completely unrelated plot-wise, but blue, white, and red. And they're kind of linked thematically, and the color palette of each movie is, you know, distinctly blue, white, and red, respectively. Red, I think, is my favorite and one of my, I mean, obviously one of my favorite movies of the 90s. I think it's incredible. It's about a supermodel who uh, basically encounters a, a judge and their lives kind of like intersect in like a really uh, interesting way. And then there's kind of another storyline uh that is about you know jealousy and betrayal and 
I don't know. It's really hard to talk about this movie without spoiling it. And I'm assuming a lot of our listeners probably haven't seen it. So I don't want to give too much away, but it is, it's a really interesting movie. And I think it's really moving. I don't know. You, you, you had never seen this before this episode. So what did you think about it? It, it was all right. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. What? I'm sorry. But dude, I told you, man, I struggle with these human connection movies. Like I really do. And that's really what the movie was about. The movie was about being human and fate and all that bullshit. And uh, <laughs> I mean, did you watch this it movie? Was, I did. Oh, yeah. hundred percent, dude. <laughs> like um, I and uh, don't get me wrong. At first, the relationship with the judge, I, it was kind of I did like it like I really did. And uh, and obviously the whole thing with her boyfriend. I mean, I don't I, it's not really spoiling. He's a fucking dick. He's a controlling asshole. Right. And obviously the, the theater scene was really good. After I watched it, I did read a lot of people pointed to the, the end theater scene, um, which I won't go into what it is or what the twist or whatever you want to fucking call it is. Uh, that was really well done. And I appreciated their relationship. But I've told you in the past, I struggle with these human connection stories. And that's really what it was. Right. So I'm not insulting the movie at all. I may even watch the other two parts of the trilogy. I doubt it, but I might. Um, what do you mean but you I, doubt anybody- it? Why, why would you not watch the other two movies? They're classics. What's the fucking point? You said there's no connection. Like, I mean, um, but I will say if someone's like on the fence or they're like, hey, I want to branch out into foreign movies. Like, is this going to be a good one? I wouldn't say no. I wouldn't be like, oh, fuck, don't watch this. Like everyone fucking loves this movie. Apparently I looked it up on Letterboxd uh, when I gave it three stars. (laughs) Um, I looked up and realized everyone gave it a four to five. Uh, So apparently it's beloved. I... I dude, look, I've, I've been I've been up front with you about these these connection stories and shit, and it's just hard for me to relate. And if you can't relate to a movie on some level, it's really a struggle to get into it. Wait, what do you mean by human connection stories? This isn't a genre. I mean, like every movie no, no, is. I, a I, human I don't mean to belittle it. No, dude, that was the whole point of this. She was she was lonely. She was somewhat afraid. She was insecure, whatever the fuck you want to call it. She was a model. So like uh, some of that comes with the territory. And just with her relationship that she started forming with the judge, I just couldn't. I liked their interaction, but I couldn't get on board. My favorite scene of the movie, honestly, is probably because of how I feel about animals, which is when she tells him that I've hit your dog and he acts really nonchalant. And she's like, you know, if it had been your daughter, would you react the same? Like, I really did like that scene. And I'm not saying it's a bad movie. It's just, it wasn't, I'll tell you this, the other movie on this list, the other, the other movie that I won't spoil that's higher up on your list fucking blew me away. It was, it was touching and phenomenal. I won't spoil what it is, but when we get to that, when I have much more positive things to say about it, God damn it, dude. Well, I'm not saying it's a bad, it's not a bad movie and I, and I highly recommend anyone to watch it and I'm glad I watched it. Cause I mean, I, tr- I, I really like to watch movies that are beloved by the cinema, the cinema community. So yeah, it was good. <laughs> All right. Well, hold on. let me just say so, one last thing about the three colors trilogy. John is completely underselling how emotionally rich and kind of quietly devastating slash heartwarming this movie is it is it is incredible it is about human connections it is you know i should have put this higher on my list i can't believe you didn't like this movie dude i thought you would like this movie 
Dude, it's not like I disliked it. I am surprised it's so low given how much you talk about it. I'm very surprised that it's at least not number nine, and we'll talk about that when we get to your number nine. Um, God. All right. Let's Jesus fucking Christ. Let's go. What's your number nine? Here we go. Uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. This is, to my mind, I mean, it's a play that got turned into a movie. It is nothing short of uh, magnificent. Uh, the Pacino won an Academy Award for it. You've got Kevin Spacey. You've got Jack Lemmon given probably my se- – yeah, it's my second favorite performance because, honestly, The Apartment, uh, we've already talked about that on past episodes. That's my favorite performance of his, but this movie, he was like – he was fucking perfect. Alan Arkin, uh, Ed Harris, Alec Baldwin is like in it for like six minutes, but he manages to almost steal the movie. It is It is pretty much the perfect – 90s movie almost whenever you look at what the subject matter is and uh it's written by the great dave mamet and i fucking love this movie i don't i don't i can't think of a flaw in it i love i love the entire like cells aspect i love this world that was in this world for a bit and i just i really love the themes of this movie everything about it's fucking great i don't know how you feel about it we've never talked about it uh, first of all, we have talked about it. Second of all, um, when did we talk about it? When you gave me the DVD to watch, and I had never seen it before, and I watched it uh, like ten years. Oh, ago. I totally forgot about that. Damn. Yeah, I only watched this because of you. Uh, I mean, I probably would have stumbled across it at some point, but yeah, you gave me the DVD. Like, God, I want to say it was ten years ago. It's probably fifteen years ago now. But, um, but yeah, I I like this movie. I I I. I I don't know. It's good. I, I guess I don't quite, um, and I would definitely like recommend it. It's it's a good watch. Um, I don't. I guess I don't kind of understand slash. Uh, I guess I don't see it in that level as kind of like being someone's favorite movie or putting it on top ten list or whatever. Or you know, I don't know. It's well done. It, that's really kind of all like I have to say about it. So it's good. It's a well done movie. It's entertaining, but it doesn't really, I don't know. It doesn't really hit home for me, any other aspect of it. It's funny. It's definitely funny. Um, Alec Baldwin steals the show. You know, Jack Lemmon is incredible. Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't have a lot to say about Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. It's good. It's watchable. It's fun. But uh, I don't know. It just doesn't blow me away like it does you. See, and I totally understand that. This is a really bizarre movie, like in terms of, oh, it's on someone's top 10, like you said, like this. But to me, there's something about it. Ever since the first time I watched it, the, the really quick, witty dialogue, the way it was delivered, Al Pacino was like on God mode in this movie. And um, I just, I don't know, I love this world. But I mean, if it gives the listener any better idea, I'm also a big fan of Wall Street, Boiler Room, things like that. I love these kind of cells world films when they're done well um so yeah i totally understand like you being like it's a good movie but not much else this just happens to be one of those movies i was struck with it the first time i watched it and uh, i've watched it numerous times over the years and i still love it it's it's you know the strengths of this movie are strengths that i don't particularly don't particularly grab me i think because the strengths of this movie is the writing you know, it's much better written than it is directed, which is like something I can recognize and appreciate. But, you know, most of the time I'm all about the vibes, you know, when it comes to a movie. And 
the vibes of this movie don't really kind of get their get their hooks into me as much as you know another movie. Like I, I rewatched Michael Clayton recently, and I know they're kind of wildly different uh, tonally, but like that is the kind of movie that I like to watch about like business, you know, like because I, I think like we're talking about like the business picture, you know, when we talk about Wall Street, when we talk about Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, Michael Clayton, you know. Um, even some of these whistleblower stories like the insider and, you know, movies like that, they're kind of corporate thrillers in a way. And I, I, I kind of like those stories for me to kind of take a more noir turn, more of kind of a dark, you know, thriller aspect, as opposed to this kind of talky stagey. Um, it's a performance based movie, which is something that I don't, I don't gravitate towards usually, if that makes sense. So I feel like, all of the good things about this movie are things that I don't usually like fall in love with in movies. If that makes sense. No, I get it a hundred percent. I just, it just happens to be a movie. I just really love, but I totally understand it. Yeah. Like I feel like it's tuned to a frequency that is, that is not quite mine, but I, I do appreciate it. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a great movie. You know what I mean? You can't, you can't, you're, you're watching Glenn Gray, Glenn Ross. You can't like, you're going to have a good time. You know, that's, that's just the end of it. And it's, it's underrated for, for how funny it is. Like, and I don't even mean like laugh out loud, like screwball funny, but like, it's just, it's like the dialogue is fucking hilarious. I mean, Oh, Alan Arkin, Alan Arkin and Ed Harris, when Ed Harris is playing like this really straight, like aggressive, hard headed, they can't treat us this way, like constantly. And Alan Arkin, who is also playing somewhat of a a subtle straight guy, but the way he's delivering his lines opposite Ed Harris is fucking brilliant. Right. Like Alan Arkin is truly one of the uh, underrated actors of his generation. He is simply phenomenal. Right. Yeah. This this is like a Mad Men quality, I think, where like it's not supposed to be like overtly funny, but it still is, you know? Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's great. It's fucking great. Alec Baldwin is great too. Yeah, and I think really this just kind of speaks to where like we were at growing up with movies. Like you've talked about, you got into movies, you know, kind of later in your teens and stuff. And I was an Al Pacino fan. Like Pacino and De Niro were kind of my guys in terms of what I'm going to watch growing up. Right. So if it had Pacino in it, I was going to watch it. This is probably. Right behind Scarface and The Godfathers, this is like probably like the fifth Pacino movie I saw. Right. And it just, his performance was electric. It was just, yeah. So I think that's another big reason why I watched it. Yeah. Is that. So, yeah, it's, it's got everybody, but anyway. it's got everybody fire, fire, firing on all cylinders. You know what I mean? Like, like Pacino is really doing Pacino. Kevin Spacey is really doing Kevin Spacey. Alec Baldwin is really doing Alec Baldwin. And it's, uh, that's, that's a lot of fun, you know? Yeah. And I, and I remember before I watched it, uh, my brother was like, Jack Lemon is one of the greatest actors of all time. And he doesn't get enough credit. And right. he's like, this is one of the reasons why, like, because lemon switches gears so much in this movie, it was masterful. Yeah. Like he goes from, from being super like arrogant, like, fuck you, Kevin Spacey, like, give me my shit. Like, I need those leads, bitch. Yeah. And then when, when Spacey finds out what he did, he's like, no, no, it's okay, man. Um, let's say, no, no, I got a daughter. I got a daughter. See, and like, yeah. I, no, I, I can't do this to me. And it's dude, it's, it's brilliant. It's an acting like, clinic. Let me, let me, yeah. Jack yeah. Lemon is incredible. So, 
But uh, yeah, if you have not seen Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, watch it. It was on Netflix for a while. Not sure if it still is, but it's worth paying four dollars to rent it. I actually don't think it is available on. Uh, it's on HBO, HBO Max, HBO Go, HBO Now, whatever all that shit is. Uh, oh yeah, that's where I just watched it. I watched it a couple months ago, and I watched it on HBO. I believe. Yeah, but it is actually not available to rent on Amazon. You have to like it's only available with an HBO subscription, which is wild to me. That's fucking crazy. I know. Jesus. I know. So uh, let's get to your number nine. Move this puppy along. Yeah, my number nine, another movie that I'm, I can already, I already can tell by your fucking tone that you're really going to dig into. Uh, uh, <laughs> my number nine is the Harold Ramis classic, uh, Bill with Bill Murray, uh, Groundhog Day. I, uh, let me just, let me just get my shit out of the way before you, you know, before I can, I can feel your vibe, you know? Um, no, that's unfair. That's unfair. You don't know what I think about this movie. Look, Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day is great. It's incredible. It's funny. It's obviously most people know the story. It's about a guy who, for some reason, is experiencing the same day, Groundhog Day, over and over and over again. It's really funny. It's really heartwarming. This is. I feel like this is the kind of comedy that they really don't make anymore. You know, it's. Uh, I agree with that a hundred percent. Like it is sad. They don't make comedies like this anymore. Right. Right. It's, it's it, they, some of the humor is really broad. Some of it is a lot of it is character based, you know, based on Bill Murray's character. I think, you know, I'm not necessarily a Bill Murray like fan, but I do appreciate his, you know, his acting ability and his, um, his comedic, you know, timing and stuff. I do think he is kind of like a proto Will Ferrell almost, Although I think Will Ferrell is is funnier, but I think this is the this is the ultimate uh, Bill Murray performance in my mind because he is able to uh, go back and forth between being kind of an asshole and being kind of lovable and then kind of manic and and this is almost like a Chaplin esque performance. This is all this is all of Bill Murray in one in one movie. And if you don't like him in this movie, I think you know maybe Bill Murray is just not to your tastes. But uh, it's heartwarming. It's uh, it's a fairly bog standard like plot. It's you know a guy goes through a comedic situation and then comes out on the other side having learned something about himself. And I don't know, man. I love this movie. I think it's I think it's really effective character wise. But I also think it's really funny. It, you know, some of the scenes are just fucking hilarious, man. I mean, Punxsutawney Phil. Some of these quotes, like I, I still think about from time to time. I don't know. I really love this movie. This is one of my favorite comedies, uh, like out and out, like laugh out loud comedies. So go ahead, man. We know you don't like Groundhog Day. Let's let's hit us with it. So I watched this on Netflix like four days ago. I liked it a lot more than I watched it the first time. Oh, okay. I've seen it twice. So let me tell you why this movie isn't really my speed. And this this will clear it up 100 percent. Ace Ventura is a movie that I can still watch regularly and laugh my ass off. Right. When you compare the, I think, I think the Ace Ventura came out a year after Groundhog Day. When you compare the movies, you've got one who's really good at subtle comedy. Like Bill Murray, like you said, man, he can switch gears. His interaction before he like goes through like the, the pretty, um, uh, what is it? Um, like regular cliched change of his character. You know, he evolves. Mm. He's hilarious in the beginning. Right. Like when, when he's doing the weather and then when he gets to the hotel and he like, when he's talking to the, he's talking like everyone's beneath him and it's really funny. Right. Like it really is. His delivery is perfect. Then you have Ace Ventura. You have Jim Carrey. Nothing about this man is subtle. 
nothing. Right. Like he is just, it is just man. Like it is insane. It is, uh, it is slapstick screwball. Yeah. He is literally a rubber cartoon character, um, acting whimsy and flailing about that is more my speed when it comes to like the nineties feel of comedies. Right. So I enjoyed groundhog day. I'm not a big Bill Murray fan. I don't understand the obsession. Um, guys like him and Jeff Goldblum, I kind of feel like take on a, a, a like a, a feeling of their own. They become their own planet almost. Yes. In terms of how people feel about them and like the weird quirks, and they have documentaries about them and bumper stickers and blah blah blah. And no offense to them or anybody that loves them, they're just not my thing. Yeah. So I liked Groundhog Day, and I and I really did. I laughed like I was laughing consistently throughout it. But it is just not really my uh, my speed. But I have two interesting facts for you that I caught while watching Groundhog Day. Okay. One, Andy McDowell, I was like, man, she looks really familiar. Like, why does she look so familiar? Because I know who she is, obviously. Like, she was in a ton of shit. Everyone knows who she is. But I was like, no, there's something about her face. I looked it up. Come to find out, she is Margaret Qualley's mother. Right, 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 right. So that was weird. They have the same eyes and everything. The other interesting thing that I found... One of my favorite working actors, possibly my favorite working actor, has a brief cameo in this movie, and he looks so different. It is at the dance towards the end when Bill Murray is going through his change and he's done all these things throughout the day to help people and all that. And it's the couple who runs in and they're like, they just got married and they give them tickets. That man was Michael Shannon. Oh, my God. How weird is that? Oh, my God. That's insane. I never noticed. Yeah, man. So I'm watching and I'm like, holy shit. Like, so then I looked it up to make sure. But yeah, man, it was fucking Michael Shannon. That's so crazy. Like, that's I love that dude. He's fucking awesome. So yeah, that's the two fun facts from Groundhog Day. But no, I, I don't. I would not say I dislike this movie. I'm not going to say I'll ever watch it again. But I'll tell you this. I think this is a good compliment to give a movie. If someone's like, hey, man, we need a crowd pleaser that's on Netflix. That's suitable for children as well. This is up there. Like it really is. It's charming. It's funny. I think it's a crowd pleaser. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know, man. When that when that fucking groundhog is driving that truck, I mean, it's just you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. It, <laughs> there was there was some good stuff. Like uh, I, I really liked when he was going through the the slow change when he was go when he when he was slowly learning things. Obviously, the suicide montage was like. Yeah, we've seen this done. Like, I love the Tom Cruise movie about aliens. Oh, right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. that That's a great fucking movie. And I love the concept used in that. So I think that that was just really, I don't know. It's kind of like, it's just a fun thing to think about. Because what would you do if you lived the same day over and over again? I will tell you, one of the hangups might be, what if like you die? What if like you want to, you want to test the limits? But then it doesn't start over. Then you're just kind of fucked because you're dead. So <laughs> yeah, there's always you, that fear. Then you release yourself from the sweet hell of having to live that day over and over again. I guess. But man, how long would it take for that shit to get old? <laughs> the things you could do. Um, <laughs> All right. Calm down. So uh, so anyway. Okay. Yeah. So you want to move on? Um. Yeah. Hold on. Let's see. What number are we on? Eight. You're going to do number We're eight? We're on number eight. Yeah. Yeah, and my number eight, we're not going to talk about very much. We've already talked about it, and we'll kind of we'll kind of scoot along because we've we've already t- taken a lot of time. Shawshank Redemption, it was in my top favorite films of all top five favorite films of all time episode we did. I think two episodes ago. Go listen to that. We talk about it a little more in depth. 
I don't want to like rehash a lot because we don't want to bore you guys. It's a beautiful movie about friendship. It's really well done, well directed, classic cast. I feel like this is like the quintessential 90s movie. Right. Um, yes. So it's kind of cliche to have it on the list, but I don't give a fuck because I love it and I'll die on that hill because this movie is pretty much perfect. So wait, how many of your, um, and yeah, I mean, I agree, um, you know, go listen to our, uh, top five of all time episode. Um, it's a classic. Everybody should watch it. How many of your top five movies are on the nineties list? Two of them or th- three, three of them. Okay. Yeah. And what were your other two raging bull and what else? No, Raging Bull was in the eighties. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was the other two? The oh, you mean? Oh, yeah. Scar Scarface. Scarface. That's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, if you want to listen to me, if you haven't listened to our top five, go back and check them out. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a good ass episode. So, One of our more uh, popular ones, definitely. Yeah. Um. So, what is your number eight? You know, my number eight. You know, I don't have a lot to say about this movie at all. I'm sure we'll do a Coen Brothers episode someday, but it, my number eight is The Big Lebowski. It's, you know, speaking of cliches, obviously it's, it's kind of a, you know, obvious, you know, choice at this point, but I, I just, I mean, what can you say? It's, it's the Coen brothers, you know, like sometimes they, sometimes they make movies on purpose that are to be screwball comedies, you know, like the Hudsucker proxy or burn after reading, which I do like burn after reading or Hail Caesar, or what was that movie with Tom Hanks, The Lady Killers, you know, sometimes the Coen Brothers. Yeah, I, I will say The Lady Killers was a remake we didn't need. I mean, I don't want to besmirch the the Coen Brothers, but uh, the best thing about that movie was Marlon Wayans saying, you brought your bitch to the Waffle Hut? Um, that's the best thing about it, well, sorry. Well, what I was going to say is that, like, it, it, like, sometimes the Coen Brothers really shoot for screwball comedy, and I don't think it's what they're best at. You know, I don't, I think when they're really going for screwball comedy, they actually don't do it that well. And I think their movies that aren't trying that hard are actually a lot funnier. And, you know, I think the big Lebowski is a great example of that because the humor is more laid back. It's less, less indebted to those madcap screwball comedies of the 1930s that they love so much. And I think this really is, is the, obviously the Coen brothers funniest movie. It's, you know, the quotations are endless. Um, you know, I, I mean, Jesus, you know, what can you even say about the big Lebowski at this point? It's a great comedy. It's funny. It's, uh, I don't know that, you know, what can you say about the big Lebowski? Go fucking watch it. If you haven't seen it, I don't know. What do you think about it? Oh, I, I, I fucking love it. There is one reason this movie is not on my top 10. And that is because I broke my rule of one film, one film per filmmaker for Scorsese. I didn't break it for Quentin Tarantino or the Coen brothers. Otherwise Pulp Fiction and Big Lebowski would be on my list. Right. Um, Big Lebowski is perfect. Um, I won't say much about it cause we're doing a Coen brothers episode at some point. That is going to be a big episode. Because I think we somewhat kind of disagree on them because I think there's nothing they can't do well um, in terms of I pretty much think they're they were created in a lab. I'm not saying I'm not saying their screwball comedy like falls flat to the extent that it's not good. I just think that like I think that when they're when they're consciously uh, trying to recreate the madcap screwball comedies of the 1930s, you know, shit like bringing a baby and the Philadelphia story, the Palm beach story, you know, those kind of movies, it happened one night, you know, I think they're a lot 
better at taking their foot a little off the gas pedal, I guess. It, yeah, that's what I'm that's what I'll say. Yeah, no, I think it's going to be a fun episode when we talk about him. And and, and I, I don't want to share too much about um, Big Lebowski. I will say one quick story. I went and saw Big Lebowski in a movie theater when they were doing Lebowski night and everyone showed up in robes and shit. I did not. But the cool thing is they were serving white Russians the entire movie. So you could drink white Russians and watch the Big Lebowski. That rules. Where was this at? Was this in Pensacola? No, it was when I lived in Sitka. Alaska. Oh, damn, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty cool. So my number seven is Fight Club. And I feel like, I mean, a lot of people have said this. We've discussed it on the podcast. It defines the 90s. It defines everything about the consumerism and all that shit. And I think it's perfect. I think David Fincher was the right man for the job. Norton and Pitt, just perfect. And um, I I, lo- I love this movie. I love the style of this movie. I love the violence of this movie. I love the message of this movie. I love all the thematic elements. It is, I don't know, it is a movie about somewhat toxic masculinity it, while embracing it and mocking it at the same time. Right. And it's just brilliant. I fucking love this movie. I watched this movie the year it came out. I did not understand this movie. I think I was fucking 13. And I, and I watched it again and again and again, and slowly things started to click. But this is one of those movies that it, it just works on every, on every level. I know you, I, I think you, I know you like it, but I don't know how you feel about it outside of that. So you know, I, Fight Club is kind of an interesting uh, work to think about, and definitely, definitely an interesting one to kind of dive into for a list episode like this. Because, you know, it, it, it strikes me as kind of like a Rorschach test. This movie, you know, I think the first time you watch it, or maybe the first time a lot of people watched it, you know, I, I feel like it's a very complex work of art because I feel like there's one response to this movie, which is that Ed Norton or that Brad Pitt rules and that the, everything rules and that this is how to be a man and that this is awesome. And this is just fucking rules and is cool. And that's, you know, obviously I feel like a very immature way to look at it, but then there's the, the alternate way, which while not equally as immature is I think also a little bit short sighted, which is that it is a blatant satire that it's supposed to be, you know, really, really this obvious satire of, you know, kind of toxic masculinity and, and so forth. And I I think that's equally as misguided. I don't think that is exactly what David Fincher is up to either. Because at the beginning of the movie, the the kind of boredom and the the, the frustration of, you know, being a cog in the machine of late stage capitalism is fucking it's real it's i think it's a little bit disingenuous to kind of go back to fight club and be like it's all satire it, it's all making fun of these characters and because i don't think it is it's a mixture of the two and it's a complicated mixture of the two the kind of thing that only fincher could really pull off you know because he has a little bit of ironic distance from these characters but he doesn't deny them their reality which is the fact that they are miserable and they do get some sense of feeling and purpose by beating the fucking shit out of each other and then blowing up a bunch of buildings at the end. So I don't know, man. It's it's I think it's a much more complicated and interesting movie than people give it credit for. 
you know, if we're going to talk about that end scene, most people have seen Fight Club. If you haven't seen Fight Club, go see it. Spoiler alert, the end scene, when the buildings are blowing up, I think that that feeling of catharsis, you know, when the buildings are blowing up is real and genuine. And like the, it's a genuine movie character. But the music that is playing over it is silly. And, you know, the Pixie song is is over the top and silly and ironic. And it's that mixture of the two things that I think David Fincher is only capable of. It's, it's similar to, um, it's similar to the social network, you know, how tongue in cheek is the social network? How ironic is the social network? It's, you know, it's, it's, it is, but it also isn't, it's a real portrait of the halls of power and how, you know, how, uh, this current like Silicon Valley, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Google, you know, how all that shit started and was built, you know, it's, so it's sincere by turn, but it's also mocking in turn. It's, uh, I don't know, man, it, it's, it's, it's a really multi-layered, multifaceted work, I think more so than people give it credit for. Oh, I agree. I think on the surface, people just look at it as this, like, Oh, the adult version of cutting yourself, beating the shit out of each other. The only pain you can control, blah, blah, blah. Right. I think that the themes run much deeper. The unsung hero here is Chuck Palahniuk. He, we wouldn't have this without his book. And also I forgot to throw in there that Helena Bonham Carter was fucking brilliant in this movie. She held that shit together perfectly. I'll tell you before we move on to your number seven, I will tell you who wasn't a fan of this movie. And that is Ebert. His review was awesome because he did not like it. But I will. I want to read one line from it because when I read his review of it, because I got curious after I uh, after I, I watched it again and uh, uh, probably like a year ago, and I got really curious about what people thought when this came out because I never looked at that shit. The internet wasn't really a huge thing where we were from in '99 or 2000, you know. Sure. Yeah. So Ebert says it's only after we've lost everything that we're free to do everything. He says, sounding like a man who tripped over the Nietzsche display on his way to the coffee bar in Borders. <laughs> that, like, I, I I, don't agree with his review at all. I think he missed the point. And honestly, I think this would be an Ebert redo if he went back and rewatched it. I do think he would kind of see more of the satirical side of it. But that doesn't matter because that is a fucking great line. <laughs> that only he could have written. I yes. mean, the, the sheer wit in that line. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's true. And, you know, it's a complicated work and probably because it's not one of my, you know, it's, it's got the 300 principle, the Zack Snyder principle where it's like, it's kind of like, what are we doing here? What is this movie? You know, even, even if I feel like I, I did a pretty good job of like explaining my feelings about it, it's still like, I don't know, man, it's a curious work. It's a curious work. One of those kind of things that is. Uh, there's a lot in and it's the director really isn't taking a side. And so it's kind of like, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting work. And one that honestly, I probably have not devoted enough time to really kind of thinking about, to be honest, you know what I mean? Well, I think it's one of those movies you can celebrate from a mature perspective or an immature perspective in either way it wins. Right. Like either way the movie works. Right. So yeah, we're going to do a Fincher episode at some point. I feel like both of us love Fincher. We will talk about it a bit more because I do think it was important when you look at his filmography and when it came along. Right. Um, I don't think it was an accident. He wanted to put this movie out towards the end of the decade. And I can tell you this. I'll save the stories I have about this movie when we do a Fincher episode. But I will tell you, Brad Pitt and Ed Norton, 
thought that this was going to ruin their careers. And they sat in the back of the first screening of it, smoking a joint together while they counted the amount of people walking out of the screen, (laughs) walking out of the theater. And Brad Pitt hugged Norton and said, I think we've made it a masterpiece. (laughs) That's great. That's a great story. Yeah. So, uh, okay, let's move on to your number seven, which is uh, interesting. Here we go. Another, uh, another. (laughs) I have not been mean about any of your movies. And for some reason, you're painting me like some tyrant. I just like being the victim. Okay. Um, (laughs) All right. My number seven is The Thin Red Line. We obviously know that you're not a big Terrence Malick fan. You know, The Thin Red Line, Terrence Malick made two movies during the 70s and then basically took a 20-year break and then came back to make this movie. It's a war movie. It's a World War II movie. You know, it's. I think this is probably the greatest war movie ever made, or one of them, uh, definitely in the top, you know, three or so. And uh, it's, you know, it's it's a war movie from the perspective of God, essentially. It, it, it's, you know, we don't get really close to many of the characters. Um, we don't. Um, there really isn't a lot of narrative to speak of. It's. Uh, a lot of it is is a lot of the intention of the movie is done through its camera work, through its cinematography. It's uh, it's you know yeah that 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 is what the movie is for me. It's and it's, it's a perspective that is kind of non-human in a way and kind of uh, uh, religious and you know it's 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 a point of view that is always fascinating to me throughout a lot of Malick's work, whether or not. I think it works in some movies. It works in some movies better than others, but his sort of cinematic and artistic perspective is always fascinating to me. And I think it's equally, or it, it, it's maybe at its most fascinating when pointed at a World War II movie. That is, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I don't really know. Uh, I don't really know what else to say about it. it it's the, the the perspective of it and the the point of view is is something that that really makes it for me if that makes sense and I'm, i've never seen a war movie like this and you know there's a, there's this jean-luc godard quote which i think is interesting and i don't know if i agree with it but his quote is there's no such thing as an anti-war movie and what he means by that is that you can't you know cinema is the medium of fantasy you know you want to see you know, a close up of, you know, Ingrid Bergman or whatever allows you to fantasize what it would be like to be in love with Ingrid Bergman or for Ingrid Bergman to be in love with you. You know, cinema is a, is a, is a, a fantasy machine, a dream machine. And, you know, Godard's, uh, Godard's point is that you can't make a movie about war without accidentally glorifying it, you know? And I don't know if I agree with that, but it's an interesting point. And I think maybe this might be the movie that disproves his point. Because I don't think this so much glorifies war as it it views war from like an anthropological perspective or from a perspective of God or something. Well, I will say I, I agree with your perspective on it. Like I do think that I think there's a fine line, but you can do it. But I feel like with the way our brains work, we struggle with that in general, like you can look at the Scorsese movie, uh, a Wolf of wall street. Yeah. And it completely missed on everybody that like a lot of people were like, Oh, this is just celebrating 
uh, hedonism and consumerism and and wealth and all that. And and it's like, no, this is like a, a three hour cautionary tale of what not to be ever. And I feel like the same thing happens with war movies because you have some people that are like bullshit. If you make a war movie, if you show people getting shot, if you show people in the jungles getting blown up and you you have this division of two countries or two peoples or whatever, then you're glorifying it. And I think that's I think that's wrong. I think it's I think that if you if you exist in such black and white, then how can you even watch it? Right. Like if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, it's uh I don't know. It, it it's one of those things I don't necessarily agree with, but I think is uh, I I think is is an interesting perspective and something to keep in mind. But I mean, I don't know. What do you think about this movie? Well, now I'm just thinking about that quote because that's just really interesting. I disagree with it, but it's worth. I don't know. Maybe we can get up into that when we talk about Godard a bit. It, it's um, it's kind of one of those things where I don't even know if Godard agrees with it anymore. You know, he he's been through so many mutations in his career, but like. It, it, it's something that you kind of have to reckon with where you kind of, you kind of have to think, God, can you put anything on the screen without kind of implicitly endorsing it? And I don't think that's true, but it's something worth thinking about. It's, it's well, think, think of movies with sexual assault, right? If you put that in your movie, even if it's for the story, even if you need it to it, to be your inciting incident, like regardless of what angle you're coming at, it can be most times, exploitative right right so because at i the feel end of the like day, you're we talked about this when we talked about detroit in our Catherine bigelow episode like at the end of the day you're you're taking a thing and you're putting it on a giant i mean not anymore but back in the day you're taking a thing and you're putting it on a giant screen for a group room full of strangers to watch and like that's that's odd to think i'm gonna show a rape or i'm gonna show i don't know a grisly murder or whatever it's kind of like that's the thing that you're going to show to a room full of strangers on a big giant screen. Like there, there, there should be some kind of pause there. And I'm not saying I even have an answer for it or, or even an opinion on it, but it's, you know, it, it's like, Oh, that's what you're going to put up there. That's, that's the dream that you're going to put. Why wouldn't you just put Ingrid Bergman up there? You know? Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, I think it's something that, you could just put hours in the talking about and probably still land back at the same spot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I will say this about thin red line. I don't have much to say about it. I don't dislike the movie. If I'm going to watch a war movie, I don't mind if it's like contemplative. I prefer like, I don't know, man. I think of like, uh, Herzog's, uh, rescue Dawn. Right. Like when I think of like a contemplative uh, look on, on the brutality of war and all that, I know they're very different movies. The point is that's more my speed, Right. but I don't dislike thin red line. I think it's a very well-made movie and I wanted to rewatch it this week cause I haven't seen it in probably five years. I've seen it, uh, I think twice or three times. I just didn't have the time cause it's so fucking long. Right. But, uh, I, no, it's not a bad movie by any means. It's not one like in terms of war movies, like it's probably not in my top three, but it doesn't mean it's a bad movie. Yeah, I get so. that. It's, um, you know, I, 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 I think this has some of the some of the best dialogue in any in any Terrence Malick movie too. I think there's, like, I love this. Uh, in this world, a man himself is nothing, and there ain't no world but this one. <laughs> like, I, I think it has wow. some of the most beautiful poetic dialogue that 
that is just uh, I don't know, man. I I really love this movie. It's uh, it's it's something special, you know. It, it's not. Don't get me wrong. It's not something you're going to fire up on a you know Saturday night just to have a bunch of fun with. But I I do think it is kind of a really deeply philosophical and interesting you know meditation on the war movie and and on humanity and on cinema in general. You know, big fan. Go watch Thin Red Line, people. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, it's definitely worth watching. Um, All right, man, you want to move on? Yeah, so, um, yeah, Casino, that's my number six. You know, I don't want to say too much about it because we are going to do a Scorsese episode and this will definitely be up there for me. It's a it's a brilliant movie. It's based on a book, just like Casino, same or just like Goodfellas, same writer. I think his name's Nick Pileggi. And uh, it's kind of like a documentary. And then it like kind of like for the first hour and then it kind of switched into... Uh, switches into more of a traditional mob epic about when when they ran Vegas. And I think it kind of gets overlooked because so many people wanted another Goodfellas. You see De Niro, you see Pesci, and you're like, oh, fuck yeah, like this is going to be another Goodfellas. And it wasn't. So I kind of feel like it kind of gets lost amongst everything else. But it is definitely a special movie, and I do think it's in his upper echelon of films. It just so happened it came out in the same decade as Goodfellas. So, yeah, well, I, um, you know, I, I, I love Casino. I think it's a classic, you know, it, it it's not quite going to be on my top 10 list, but it's, um, you know, it's a masterpiece. It's definitely a, a successor, almost like a kind of sequel of sorts to Goodfellas. But I, I'd be interested because I, I kind of asked myself this question and really didn't come up with anything. So I'm interested to hear what you have to say about this. What do you see? as the differences between this and Goodfellas. Like my, my early, the only thing I could really come up with is that like, I mean, yeah, the, the kind of color palette and you know, like visuals are a little bit different because of the settings. You know, this is set in Vegas and Goodfellas is obviously set in the East Coast. But other than that, I mean, Goodfellas feels more fun, but I don't know. What, what, what do you think about the differences between those two? I'm sure this has been said before, so I'm not claiming this is an original thought, but in my opinion, Goodfellas is a movie where Scorsese grew up in it. He grew up in Little Italy. Like this is the life he saw, peering through the shop windows while gangsters roll in and out of a restaurant or whatever. That's he lived that. Right. So it was a life, it was it was a world that he lived in. That was the whole thing of Goodfellas. I think that's what drew him to that project in general. So Goodfellas, you live in it. And I feel like with Casino, you just observe it. Like, it's very clear. He told that from a narrator's perspective. Right. Like, Scorsese was like, okay, I, I, I like the world, this, this really interesting world where you're not sure of, like, uh, for like what level of forgiveness and you have a lot of guilt. There's, there's some religious aspects and um, there's always just a dude at the center who doesn't really know what he wants or what he's doing. Right. And, um, and I just feel like that's what it was with casino. And we're definitely going to talk about this a lot more in Scorsese's episode, because I feel like it deserves that because I, I, I think that it uh, casino kind of loses some of its awesomeness, if that makes sense, because people always compare it to Goodfellas. Right. I think rightfully so. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, not, not necessarily that you would watch like it's right to like, watch casino and expect it to be goodfellas but i think comparing it is kind of you know normal because of the cast and also because like 
it's like Godfather one and Godfather two in a sense, like, like, you know, you start on the East coast, you know, with the gangster movies. And then what did the gangsters do? They moved to Vegas, they moved West, you know? And that's, um, it seems like kind of a natural progression, almost like a sequel in a way, even though I know it's not, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. We can, we can obviously talk more about it. Um, in our Scorsese episode, but it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating movie and a fascinating, you know, kind of experiment that he did in making these two movies, you know, five years apart, I think. Um, yeah, no, I agree. And I, I, I obviously feel Goodfellas is superior, but it doesn't discredit Casino. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. So your number six is one we've already discussed, which is interesting, uh, that it found its way on your list. I was surprised actually. Yeah, my number six is the Clint Eastwood uh, revisionist Western, Unforgiven. You know, we talked about this quite a bit when we did our uh, our best Western episode. And again, that's we're talking. No, I don't want you guys to be confused. That's not the uh, that's not the hotel chain. We're talking about. Yeah, you won't get a discount if you show up and you're like silver screen video. Send me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're, we're talking. Don't about, try that. We're talking about the cinematic genre. We're not talking about the uh, beloved hotel chain. But yeah, uh, Unforgiven, I mean, you know, what is there to say about Unforgiven? It's, it's a um, revisionist in this, you know, a lot of these Westerns get called revisionist simply because they're a little bit darker or something, or there's one little thing changed. But I think Unforgiven is kind of philosophically revisionist in the sense that it is a repudiation of a lot of the ideas that were put forth in you know, classic John Ford Westerns. And of course the spaghetti Westerns that Clint Eastwood himself took part in. So it's kind of a commentary on the the genre of Western. It's a commentary on Clint Eastwood's career, almost like an apology. You know, it's kind of like John Ford's Cheyenne Autumn, but entertaining. And yeah, I don't know. I think this is a masterpiece. I think this is definitely one of the masterpieces of the nineties. And obviously I know you're a big Unforgiven fan, right? Yeah. Love Unforgiven. I like I said on our Western episode, I feel like it's an important Western. That's why we put it in our top ten, but it's not one of my favorites. Uh, but I do appreciate it for what it is and what it did for the genre and what it meant really with 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 this legend on screen. It was a very meta movie of sorts, right? Because right. this legend on screen and off screen, but primarily on screen for his westerns, is doing something that kind of shows like, yeah, this is what it is, right? Like. So yeah, no, I, I definitely can't argue with this pick. I was a little surprised that it was on your top 10 for the 90s, but I can't argue with it. Yeah, it's just, yeah, obviously I know you love Westerns a lot more than I do, but it's just, I, I really appreciate the kind of like swinging for the fences approach, you know, making a movie that means a lot, you know, and I feel like, I feel like Eastwood really, I mean, there's a lot of Eastwood movies where that motherfucker is coasting, you know? And uh, oh, yeah, Magnum Force, Space Cowboys. As much as I love those movies, I mean, the dude is just chilling out most of the time. But Unforgiven is really there's a lot of you can tell that he is similar to Million Dollar Baby. I feel like he he really thought that he was doing something important. And uh, I don't know, I, I like seeing some effort out of Clint, you know? Yeah, yeah, I, I even his movies, like you said, where he's not trying super hard, they're still entertaining. Like they're still fun. Oh, they're just not, yeah. you know, it's classics. So. All right, man. So what's um, your, uh, what's your number five? My number five is heat directed by the great Michael Mann. Hell yeah. I think it is, um, it is up there as one of the best heist movies. 
the only other movie like I, I'm I'm very uh, I'm, I, I love the town. I think the town is up there, but Heat is something else. Uh, Val Kilmer, Al Pacino at his most Al Pacino y, and uh, De Niro. It's a classic. If you haven't seen this movie, fucking watch it. It's an epic crime drama. Yeah, it's it's fucking great. I mean, it just it just is. Those street shootouts still fucking hold up. Nothing about this movie misses even 20 year 20 plus years later. It is just fucking magic. I mean, I would say that Heat is I mean, I would say Heat is probably the greatest heist movie. I mean, what is even its competition? I mean, it's it's re- I mean, the killing maybe, you know, Rafifi, uh, you're forgetting Hurricane Heist. <laughs> Hurricane Heist? What the hell's that? <laughs> it's some movie where they rob a bank in the middle of a hurricane. I just, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Holy shit. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I think it's on Netflix. I'm not endorsing it. I've never seen it. It was just the first uh, wacky movie I could think of. But no, I agree with you. I think Heat Heat is, um, you know, I really appreciate the town, and I would put the town in my personal top three. But I mean, Heat is in a league of its own, man. It's 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 great filmmaking when Michael Mann was at the top of his game. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know. it's you know, when you're talking about Michael Mann, I mean, we'll do a Michael Mann episode, I'm sure. But the man is a genius. I mean, he he does uh, American genre movies unlike anybody else. A visual stylist. Uh, I mean, he's gotten more baroque and more interesting with his visual style. I feel like the fir- the older he's gotten, but you know, back when he was at his you know, maybe commercial peak in the nineties. I mean, he was able to combine that incredible visual style with a really good story and a really deep characterization of all these. I mean, heat is a fucking masterpiece, man. I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm kind of surprised it didn't make my top 10, but uh, it, it is, it's a masterpiece. What can you say about heat? You know, it's essential viewing. I think. No, I agree. If you haven't seen, if you haven't seen heat, fucking watch it. You yeah. won't regret it. So your number five is interesting. Oh, Jesus Christ. Here we go with another one. Uh, my number five is the Lars von Trier movie, Breaking the Waves. Let me just get it in before Jonathan goes off. It's, uh, you know, Lars von Trier, I, I, I think, is at his best, a really great director, and at his worst, at least interesting. Well, maybe not interesting, but regardless. I, I think he has a sensibility that is kind of profane and, you know, vulgar, but also kind of religious and mythic in a way, but also kind of kitschy and ironic and campy. Sometimes he's, he's got a really unique sensibility that doesn't necessarily push all of my buttons, but I think breaking the waves is a masterpiece. I mean, it's about a woman who, you know, marries an oil rig worker and she's, she's very religious and he's not. And then he gets in a, an accident that paralyzes him and he the story is really not the important thing in this movie he he wants her to have sex with other men and she does it and it's it's basically a a love story and uh in much of you know it's like the shirley uh, jackson story the lottery it's a fable it's kind of a fairy tale where this innocent loving creature is kind of treated very brutally and very unkindly it's like the it's like the scarlet letter in a way there's you know there's a lot of interesting um mythic elements around this story and it's uh, it's ultimately i think a portrait of injustice and intolerance 
and how evil those things can be. Very similar to Dogville from a few years ago with Nicole Kidman, but a lot more watchable, a lot more entertaining and a lot funnier. I don't know. I love this movie. I think it's a masterpiece. I think I'm in awe of this movie, to be honest. I I can't even fathom how somebody came up with it and how somebody made it. It, it It is incredible to me. So go off, man. Breaking the Waves. I know you didn't like it. You know I don't movie bash. You it's, oh my god. Are you really trying to I do not movie? you don't movie I do not, bash? I do not movie bash movies you love. You know, I have a difference of opinion sometimes, and sometimes a joke here or there can be made. Motherfucker. Breaking the way is not one of my things. It's not. I watched it. It was it was long. It was God, it was long. But I will tell you this. I'm on the outside looking in on this one. Everybody fucking loves this movie. Everybody sees something I'm missing. Ebert loved it. It's on his top 10. Uh, I think his own score says he's top 10 too for the 90s. Like, fuck. Like, I'm definitely odd man out. And I get it. I'm not going to bash this movie. It's not my thing, man. I just, I don't see what everybody else sees in it. Could it be because of my pessimism or what the fuck ever i don't know but it's not my thing if you want to watch it watch it let us know what you think i'm very curious to see if if other people feel the same but i know it is it's pretty it's pretty high on everyone's list so i'm odd man out on this yeah i just it's so it's such it's so emotional it's it's so shocking shockingly emotional and heartfelt and uh incredible i just i love this movie so much it's 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 a masterpiece in every regard, but yeah, we don't have to, we don't have to dwell on it. Maybe, maybe, maybe for just like a torture device, we'll have, we'll do a Lars von Trier episode, uh, one of these days. For sure. Yeah. That sounds great. <laughs> so my number four, once again, not going to spend a ton of time. We've already done it. We've already covered it. Braveheart. Uh, nothing's changed since a month and a half since we've recorded our top five favorites. It is still, uh, perfect. Uh, it is great. Uh, Jacob agrees. We both hold this movie highly. We love it. <laughs> yeah. So that's it. It holds up, man. And like, in all seriousness, uh, you don't like it as much as I do, but you do like it. I do. We did figure that out on our top five episodes. So go back and listen to that if you haven't, but, uh, I love this movie always will. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's a fun movie. Don't get me wrong. It's uh, I don't buy into like the emotional story and all that shit, but it, uh, I can't deny it's it's fun. And those bad fucking battle scenes, man, it's uh, that's a TNT movie for me. And I don't mean that as a bad thing at all. You know, you catch that thing on TNT, you're finishing that movie, you know? Oh, yeah. No, for sure. No, I get it. So a weird thing is your number four is my number three. So let we can just talk about it as much as we want to anyway, because it's definitely going to be on our Coen Brothers episode. So, yeah, you know, Fargo, it's, uh, I don't know, Fargo is a masterpiece. I feel like this is the perfect encapsulation of the Coen brothers, you know, uh, aesthetics, you know, I, I, I love the Coen brothers and I think they can almost do no wrong. And, uh, I'm not sure they made a bad movie necessarily, but it, 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 I, I always think like, man, the Coen brothers are geniuses and they make some great movies, but I genuinely don't think they've ever made anything as great as Fargo, even with no country for old men. And, you know, a lot of these great movies they've made, it's just Fargo is so fucking incredible. It's got that, that bleak misanthropic vision of the world that they have that. And I, I, I've only watched the first season of the TV show Fargo, but it appears to be able to sustain a multi-season TV show. You know, that attitude, that kind of misanthropic things are bad, you know, people hurting each other. 
But the amazing thing about Fargo is that there is one, you know, bright shining light at the center of that. And that is Francis McDormand's character. You know, it reminds me of a David Lynch movie. It reminds me of Twin Peaks because there is this kind of bolt of light in the middle of this movie that is kind of melting the, the cold snow away. And it's, it's, it's one of their best creations. I think one of the best performances in, you know, modern cinema, definitely of the nineties. It's, it's, I don't know, man, it's, it's, it's fucking incredible. I mean, you should be talking more than me. You have it number three and I have it number four. It's, it's, it's a fucking masterpiece, man. Yeah, no, I have a ton to say, but I shall hold off. We're going to do a Coen Brothers episode soon. Actually, probably next month. It's probably going to be my pick for, for director. Um, it's brilliant. This movie is, there is only one reason this is their best movie and not no country, but we'll get into that to me. Anyway, we'll get into that more on their episode, but there's nothing these guys can't do. They're always bringing something to the table and yeah, they're special. They really are. They are a very special duo and Francis McDormand in this movie gives what I think is her best performance, like period. I think it's the best performance she's ever given. She was absolutely perfect. So yeah, it's a perfect movie. It's, 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 it really is. I mean, one of the greatest, you know, director directors or directing teams. I mean, probably the greatest directing team, but one of the greatest, you know, working directors, it's their masterpiece. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's a fucking masterpiece of a movie. Watch Fargo, go fucking see it. So your number four, my number three. So what's your number three? My number three is close up, uh, which is an Iranian movie from Abbas Kiarostami. Um, it's kind of a half fiction, half documentary. I'll, uh, I don't know, before I get into the half fiction, half documentary, you had not seen this movie previously. So what did you think about it? I fucking loved it. Even though, to me, it was heartbreaking to watch. Right. Certain aspects of it just really were were really heartbreaking. The end of it was really touching. It was just such an interesting experience because it was like this re- like really bizarre blend of reality and cinema. Right. But while that was happening, there was a third level. It was like fucking Inception. Right. Because everybody comes back to play themselves. Some of it's reenactment. Some of it's documentary. And- while all this is going on at the core, you still have an individual who is playing a character in real life for this documentary, reenacting it for a movie. Right. It's fucking insane. Right. It was brilliant. Watch it. If you haven't seen it, it's yeah, it was, it was, it it blew my mind. It was, it was great. You know, this will probably be the last movie we, uh, we get into uh, in depth because of the, we've already really discussed our, our, both of our top two and other episodes, but I, you know, I, I'm constantly in awe of this movie and how formally daring it is. I mean, just to, um, give a little bit of context for our listeners, it's, uh, it's basically about a a guy who is impersonating a famous director and he eventually goes on trial for fraud and some of it is documentary and some of it is reenactment, but the reenactment is done by the people who like, it's not reenacted by actors. It's reenacted by the people who actually did the thing in the first place. So it's kind of like restaged by the same people. And at the center of it is this, you know, this character, this guy who kind of loves movies so much that he uses it as a way to, you know, self-identify and to kind of uh, put 
uh, interact with others. And it's, it's the ending is, I, I do agree with you. There are certain parts of it that are kind of dark and kind of depressing a little bit, but the ending is so touching. And so, I mean, talk about human connection. I mean, it, it, it's, it's stunning in its display of kind of humanity and like what, you know, what really is kind of the magic between these interactions between human beings, which at the end of the day is really all we have, you know, and kind of how cinema can be a catalyst for it and kind of a, it, it, and it's, it's formal complexity is, is shocking. I mean, it, it is, it still blows my mind to this day that someone even made something like this. I mean, it takes one of those meta documentaries like exit from the gift shop or like, you know, stuff like that. It takes it to like, and makes it look like child's play compared to something like this. It, it, it is, I mean, he influenced the director of this movie, Kurostami influenced the outcome of the case in real life. Like he convinced the judge to let this guy off easy in his fraud charge. And it, it, it's, I don't know, man. I, I don't even know, really know what to say about close up. It, it, it is easily one of the most stunning experimental. And, and I think that is kind of what the best of what cinema can be as at its most formally daring, something that is really out there when it comes to how formally daring and experimental it is, but it never loses touch, you know, like you never feel like you're just watching random images on the screen. You're always kind of holding on to that thread of humanity uh, throughout the whole center of it. If that makes sense, you never, you never lose. No, thread. that makes perfect sense. That's a good way to put it. Like you don't, in my opinion, like even though it's based in, in such this out there idea of what was happening with, with the whole fraud and everything, like you still don't lose like this is humanity. Right. Like you don't lose that touch. Like it, it, it really was brilliant. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. When, when we were making these lists, I like, I, like I was like, oh man, I was like, I know close up is going to, I didn't know how high, but I was like, I know close up is going to be really high on my list. And I was excited for you to watch it. Cause I knew you, I mean, you can't help but be impressed by this and be kind of touched by it. And the fact that it has, it has a lot to do with cinema in and of itself. Like it's, I feel like this is a complex work that can really be approached from a lot of different angles and repeatedly enjoyed and repeatedly watched. And it's, uh, it's staggering. This is a staggering work of art. I mean, I think it's really one of the masterpieces of world cinema. No, I agree. Yeah, it was, it, it was great. Like it, it really was. If you haven't seen it, watch it. it. It is worth, I think it's an hour and 40 minutes. It's worth it. Yeah. It, it's really essential. All right. So our top two, man, you know, we, we've talked about these. You want to, you want to let everybody know what our top two is or what your number two is? Yeah. I mean, my, we both have the same number one. My number two is Reservoir Dogs, which we just discussed uh, literally on the last episode, Quentin Tarantino outside of our quarantine episode, I should say. Right. So if you want to hear us talk about that and same with Jacob's number two, what's yours? My number two is Pulp Fiction. Yeah, we, we yeah we talk about both these like a lot. Yeah, and we get into why why I like Pulp Fiction and why you like Reservoir Dogs. You know which, why we like either one better. You know we we get into all that shit. And I do want to reiterate, as I said, my rule, which I only broke for Scorsese, number one is my Goodfellas uh, is Goodfellas. But uh, I Pulp Fiction, it's not like it shouldn't be on my top ten, and it would be. But if you listen to the episode, you'll find out why I like Reservoir Dogs more. Right. But I'm not taking anything away from Pulp Fiction. It's probably the most influential movie made for modern cinema. Right. That had more to do with 
with how younger generations make film than anything else that came out. Right. So right. I'm not taking anything away from it. I just prefer Reservoir Dogs and uh, Goodfellas. Yeah, we've already talked about so much. Uh, yeah, Goodfellas so. we talked about quite a bit, and I'll just say, I mean, uh, you know, it's that tell. I, I just want to say briefly that that tells you a lot about Goodfellas and about Scorsese. In that, you know, both of us have really divergent tastes a lot of the times. Um, and we have a lot of various, like, different opinions about different things and ways that we look at movies. But it really should tell you something that, you know, Scorsese is, uh, and specifically Goodfellas, is both our number ones. I mean, how, how, how common is that, that, like, two people who have a lot of differing opinions. We both have the, not just the same movie on our list, but the same number one. It, it just shows you the power of Scorsese and the, the, the kind of, um, you know, the kind of uh, his, his style in Goodfellas is really one of the most unique things in American cinema. Uh, like ever, I think uh, really, really brought a unique voice. I think it's not, it's not, um, it's not exaggerating too much to say that if Scorsese had not made Goodfellas, the entire landscape of American cinema would be different. You know, it, Pulp Fiction would absolutely not, Pulp Fiction would not exist in the same form that it does. It uh, you know, there's a reason why we say that he is America's greatest living director, and it's because of stuff like Goodfellas. I mean, you're talking about. I think he probably made the best movie of the '80s of Raging Bull, and he made the best movie of the '90s with Goodfellas, you know, and it, it, it's, uh, he's the last one folks. He's the, he's the last master. And it's, uh, I don't know. It, it's just interesting that we both have Goodfellas number one. And honestly, I never thought about putting another movie at number one. Yeah. I knew it was Goodfellas instantly. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and I'll take it a step further. Raging bull would be not my number one for the eighties. If we did that, in my opinion, you can make the argument he made the best movie of the decade, three decades in a row. Yeah. Because you can make the argument Taxi Driver is 70s. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, like, what is the, I mean, just briefly, what is the competition in the 70s? Well, I mean, if you want to look at just the overall picture of of cinema, uh, you can't have that conversation without including Star Wars, which I believe was 77. And you also can't have that conversation without including Godfather. I was thinking, I was thinking, I mean, I don't, uh, yeah, I, I, I was thinking Godfather and I was thinking Apocalypse Now are really, it's only two contenders that I, that I would say can even really fuck with Taxi Driver. But, but yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I think you can arguably say he made the best movie of the seventies, the best movie, the eighties and the best movie, of the nineties, which is fucking wild man it uh, and what's even crazier to me is it's not even close for the 80s like no. there's not even another movie within 10 miles of raging bull uh, dude I, th- like, I feel the same way about the 90s too I, I don't think it's even close in the 90s honestly i'll just say like the 90s i just feel like there's more somewhat there's more competition a bit like because you had the rise of tarantino the cohen brothers so there was more, not that I ever struggled with Goodfellas being number one, but in the eighties, man, I'm not discounting the eighties. I'm just saying that speaks volumes for raging bull. Cause I am a huge believer that it, it might be the greatest movie ever made. So I'll tell you this. Yeah. I, I think the second best movie of the eighties is Blade Runner. And it is, I'm not, I'm not going to argue with that. It is way behind raging bull. 
Wait. We'll do the eighty. We'll do an eighties one sometime because I really enjoyed this. Uh, I really enjoyed this decade thing. Yeah, so. yeah, eighties will be fun. We should we should do one for each decade, man. Just going all the way back, you know. Yeah, no, for sure. I'm down for that. So, as a special treat for you guys, before we wrap up, we uh, this was Jacob's idea. We're gonna actually, it's your idea. You tell him what we're gonna do. Yeah. So there's a YouTube video. I got it in my recommended uh, YouTube, uh, which you know, thanks to the algorithm, I didn't even know this existed. But there's a video. That is Martin Scorsese and Roger Ebert, two people that we talk about quite a bit on the pod, uh, talking about their top 10 movies. And I would definitely recommend um, everybody to watch it. But uh, I'm just going to run down uh, Scorsese's top 10, and then we'll run down Ebert's and uh, make some comments and then uh, then get out of here. So Scorsese's is interesting. Number 10, he has a movie that you mentioned as an honorable mention, Malcolm X and heat. He has, a- I didn't, I didn't use the term honorable mention. <laughs> Excuse me. Sorry. <laughs> but he has a tie for number 10, which again, breaking the fucking rules, typical Malcolm X and heat. So he's obviously a big fan of heat. Like you are, uh, his number nine is Fargo, a movie that was both on our, on our list. His number eight really interested me, which is David Cronenberg's crash. Have you seen that movie? Yes, I've seen it. And it really interests me too, as in what the fuck? Because no, that movie is fucking ridiculous. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. I'm not saying it's a bad movie, but no fucking way it should be in his top 10. This was by far his weirdest choice. I uh, I haven't seen it in a while. I would like to rewatch it. And frankly, I think I even saw like a censored version on IFC or something. So I need to definitely rewatch it. Yeah, if you watch the regular version... It is fucking bizarre. It's one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen. Yeah, we should do a Cronenberg episode too. Yeah, I like Cronenberg. Number seven, the Wes Anderson movie Bottle Rocket. Great movie. Yeah, I think it's great, but it's kind of weird to be in a top 10. But yeah, I do love that movie. Well, I feel like it's one great director. I mean, one godly director, like just on another level, like recognizing another one. Because like, you know, I I think it's clear where Wes Anderson was going to have a career in film from Bottle Rocket. Like it was a really, it was his debut. It was really great. Uh, Number six, Breaking the Waves. Uh, Shout out to Scorsese for having really good taste there. Unlike my co-host. Number five, Bad Lieutenant. Have you, I've never seen this. Have you? Uh, Yeah, I've seen the original and the remake. I love them both, but I will say that the remake was really good. And for some reason, um, people like to, like say it's not as good because they try to compare it to the original, but the original was on a different level. It was a great movie, but the remake with a uh, Nick cage and I believe it's uh Herzog's remake. Uh, it's really good. The remake is incredible. The re- yeah, the, the remake uh, is absolutely incredible. I've never seen the original, but yeah, the remake is incredible. Nicholas cage and set in new Orleans. It's uh Oh man. It's so fucking good. Number four for Scorsese's eyes wide shut. Boy, that's high for eyes wide shut. Yeah, I was a little perplexed by that as well. Number three is A Borrowed Life. I don't know what this is. Have you ever heard of this before? It's by a, a Taiwanese director. No, I've never heard of it. I was Yeah, that was a weird one. I've never heard of that, and I've never heard of the director. Number two is The Thin Red Line. Again, Scorsese having great taste, as per usual. And his number one is Horse Thief, which is a movie I've never heard of by a Chinese director that I have never heard of. Do you know this movie? No, I looked it up, obviously, after I watched this video a while back, and I, it's on my list to watch. But yeah, no, it's uh, apparently he thinks very highly of it. And we should mention this was made in 1999. So uh, maybe today he would have different different ideas. Maybe maybe not. I don't know. But this these, these, these lists were made like right at the end of the decade. 
All right, so Ebert's number 10, JFK. Dude, I write hard for JFK. I think JFK is a severely underrated movie. Yeah, JFK is great. I mean, it would it would not be in my top. It's not in my top 10, obviously, or in my top 20, but I still like I mean, that's a great movie. Yeah. Number nine, Malcolm X, another uh, classic that you mentioned. Uh, number eight, Leaving Las Vegas, another classic that you mentioned. I should rewatch Leaving Las Vegas. Dude, I fucking love it, man. Elizabeth Shue, everything about that movie, I thought it was so depressing and bleak and fucked up. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I should I should watch it. It's uh yeah, I should rewatch it. Uh number seven, Breaking the Waves. Another uh another person with great taste here. Yeah, great taste. Number six <laughs> number six, uh Schindler's List, which is uh a little bit kind of mind blowing for me, but you know, hey, Rod- Look, dude, I don't I don't wanna be that guy here. Schindler's List is good, right? It's a really like epic, well-done film, but no, man, I'm sorry. No, it's not even top 20 for me. It's a great movie. Don't get me wrong, but I'll never understand like the immense love that that movie gets. Is it a great movie? I don't know. We'll have to talk about this. We'll have to do a Spielberg episode. I, I really like it. I mean, I saw it in theaters a couple of years back because uh, they were doing a special and I I liked it. I really did. But I mean- I, I saw on the same level as the pianist to me, like uh, whatever, you know. Hmm. On the same level of the pianist, interesting. Are you one of those uh, people who just have some questions about the Holocaust? <laughs> no, 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 no. I have. Uh, I have. I like the pianist. If anything, I like the pianist more than Schindler's List. But I have legitimate beef with that movie because uh, it beat out Adrian Brody. Beat out. Um, oh, yeah. another actor yeah. don't, for, uh, don't for get the him Oscar. started folks don't get him started yeah so no I uh, I am not as you implied a holocaust denier <laughs> no uh, <laughs> we're looking at this as strictly a cinematic perspective uh, so. Jonathan denies the holocaust number five uh, <laughs> number five uh, Roger Ebert uh, breaks the rules a little bit he says the three colors trilogy blue white and red God, I cannot. So he was wrong three times over. I, I cannot <laughs> fucking believe the way you dismissed Red like that, dude. Dude, I didn't dismiss it. It's just not my cup of tea. Jesus Christ. All right, number four, Fargo. Uh, obviously, a, a, a perpetual thing on this list. Do you think Scorsese was, he would put Goodfellas on his list, but he couldn't because he directed it? Absolutely. Uh, number three for Ebert is Goodfellas. A little too low. A little too low. If, uh, if <laughs> But of course, yeah, considering he thinks it's the greatest movie of the decade, it, it, probably, like, it probably would feel weird, though, to be like, OK, I'm doing this this TV show with Martin Scorsese, like, OK, his movie is my number one, you know, like that. that I feel like that would be a little weird. Yeah. Number two, Pulp Fiction, uh, obviously great movie. Number one, you know, Ebert loves this movie, and I do think it is a great movie. Uh, the documentary hoop dreams ebert is such a huge fan of this movie have you seen i love it too it's fucking great yeah just rated it on uh, letterbox the other day one of the greatest documentaries of all time yeah god what a great fucking movie yeah so that's ebert and uh scorsese's top 10 list and uh yeah that's that's ours man any uh any last comments on the 90s and uh anything like that anything we want to want to leave our listeners with all of your movies a break so Break it. So all the movies I'm about to name don't have five stars. Breaking the Wave has three. <laughs> then Red Line has four. Uh, Groundhog Day has four. And Three Colors Red has three. So the rest of them have five. So do mine. <laughs> God damn it. I just, dude, I just closed your list. Okay. Uh, uh, so I know you think Goodfellas is five star. Russ Reservoir Dogs. Five. Fargo. 
five. Braveheart, five? Okay. Four. Um, <laughs> Heat. A five. Casino. Five. Bike Club. Five. Shawshank. Uh, four. Glengarry. Mm, three. Matrix. Five. Dude, now I feel bad because like you gave most of mine five. Yeah, I I like your yeah. I have more of an open mind towards your uh, your point of view than dude. You I have a very open mind, dude. You you have to admit I have a very open mind. I sat down and watched Breaking the Fucking Way when I didn't have to. It's three hours fucking long. <laughs> so um, wait till we get to best movies of the two thousands. You're really gonna have fun then. Oh yeah, I can't wait. So the other day, uh, well, never mind. I can't talk about TV shows, so never mind. Abed made a joke about Terrence Malick. And it was funny. What was the joke? What was the joke? Let's hear it. Uh, he said they, they asked him about his patience for something, and he was like, "Uh, yeah, I sat through Tree of Life." <laughs> <laughs> okay, so your your cinematic appreciation is on the level of Dan Harmon. Okay, good. That's good to know. Hey, no, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> anyway, uh, oh yeah, I forgot. Yeah, yeah, never mind. I gave yeah, Breaking the Wave. Uh, uh, yeah, no, it was. It was better than Red. I enjoyed it more than Red. If you can enjoy a movie that that depressing, so look whatever, dude. Yeah. Anyway, I really enjoyed doing this. It was a lot of fun. Hope you guys enjoyed it too. Make sure you let us know if you what your favorite movies of the '90s are. If you want to give us all ten, great. If you want to give us a handful, that works too. It's just so we can kind of know uh, what you guys think and uh, and and what how you feel about our list as well. So hell yeah. And let us know uh, which decade we should do next. Um, I think we should do, uh, I don't know which one we should do next. Should we do eighties, seventies, two thousands. We already did uh, the 1910s. <laughs> you want to do the 10? I can do the 10. <laughs> no, I couldn't do that. I could probably do the twenties though. Yeah. I feel like uh, we could do the twenties easier than the tens. I don't even know at what point we were capable, what we were capable of doing in the tens. I mean, birth of a um, nation and intolerance. That's the extent of my, 19- I'm never watching birth of a nation again. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, let us know what decade and we'll, uh, if we like it, we'll do it. <laughs> so also we really want to get the, uh, we really want to get the uh, social media engagements up. So let us know what's your favorite. Uh, what do you prefer? Do you prefer birth of a nation or intolerance? Which of those two? You know, yeah, I'm sure we'll get a lot of feedback on those two movies. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, yeah, before we wrap up, uh, you got anything to add? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So guys, we're, uh, we, we just, we just came back after a little bit of a hiatus, you know, give you guys a little bit of a break, but now that we're back, if you do not subscribe to our podcast, you like what you're hearing, be sure and subscribe. Um, it really helps our numbers and helps us, uh, keep doing this for you guys, uh, putting out that great fucking content. Also leave a review, you know, leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know. Well, no, let me take that back. Leave us a review. If you like the podcast, if you don't like the podcast, you're going to leave a one-star review. Don't fucking review it. All right. Yeah. Or we'll have to delete that review. Yeah. We'll delete the review. And uh, I don't know if that's possible, but we'll find out what else. What, what else is that supposed to say? Subscribe. Oh, oh, share this bad boy. Tell your friends. Uh, that is the, that is the best way that these things can grow. If you know someone who likes movies, um, you know, send them our way and uh, tell them to check us out and see if they like us. Maybe they won't, but uh, maybe they will. And they'll contribute to this little little uh, community that we're building here at the Silver Screen Video. Absolutely. And guys, follow us on Instagram. If you're not, uh, we post on there pretty regularly and um, our links and bio and all that shit. So you can find us. And like Jacob said, tell your friends, tell them about our Instagram, tell them about we're also on Twitter. 
And, uh, and by the way, I think Jacob's already mentioned this before, but I do a lot of commenting on Twitter or on, on Instagram. So if I'm on there saying, Oh, I love this movie, this movie, just remember that it's, it's awkward when I'm leaving a comment to say one half of the, uh, podcast loves this movie. So I kind of take, like, kind of take things on the Instagram. Jacob takes things on the Twitter. So if something offensive pops up on Twitter, you blame Jacob (laughs) and, um, and yeah, letterbox is a new thing we're doing. It is letterboxed.com with no E. So L E T T E R B O X D. And we're on there as silver screen vid with both capital S's and a capital V. That is really our next thing. It is something that Jacob found and we really want to try to get more engagement on that. You can read what we're, we're rating movies. We'll write reviews and uh, follow us on there. We'll follow you guys. We want to know what you're watching, see what list you're making. And uh, we really just want to do what we've wanted to do since the beginning when we started what seems like forever ago, but it's only been five months, which is start a cine- like a cinema community. We want uh, that feedback. We want to know what you guys are watching and, and, and what you guys think of what we're watching. So do yes. that and uh, we'll, we'll be as active as we can. Hell yeah. Yeah. I've been active on Twitter. I've been interacting with some of you guys, been, uh, been spouting some thoughts, you know? So yeah, be sure to check us out and yeah, try to, try to help us, uh, build this little, little community that we're, uh, that we're trying to, uh, to build here at the, uh, the silver screen video, you know, the apocalypse is happening, but, uh, you know, the lights are still on here at the silver screen and, uh, they will be for the foreseeable future. So, uh, all right. You want to take? Should a- I be paying attention to what you're posting on Twitter? Because uh, I don't really look at Twitter a lot. Are you bashing any of the movies I love or any of that? Uh, no, um, of course not. I'm a. It's a Braveheart fan account. Yeah. Okay, I'll start following Twitter a bit more. <laughs> anyway, guys, thanks a lot for listening. We appreciate it, and um, we will be back next week with something good for you. And uh, yeah, stay safe out there. And thanks for stopping by the Silver Screen video. to that for one chance just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives but they'll never take our freedom